the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Judges, the Midianites have been defeated, and now we see Gideon making some good decisions and some well-intentioned but really bad decisions. We'll pick it up in Judges chapter 8, verse 13. Once again, that's Judges chapter 8, verse 13. So verse 13, And Gideon the son of Joash returned from the battle. King James says, Before the sun was up. I guarantee you they did not do that before the sun was up. They were exhausted. The word actually means by the pass of Heres. Heres also means sun in Hebrew. But it's a mountain pass in Gilead, a specific place. And so after they rested a little bit and they went back, they went by this mountain pass. And it says in verse 14, in that mountain pass, they captured a young man from the men of Sukkoth. And they inquired of him. It means they interrogated him. This guy was a teenager or even younger. And they captured him and they interrogated him. And so he described unto them the princes of Sukkoth and the elders thereof, even threescore and 17 men. So 77 men who were responsible for refusing to feed Gideon and his men. So verse 15, and he came into the men of Sukkoth and he said, uh, check this out, Zeban Zamuna, with whom you did upbraid me. The word upbraid, it means to mock, to taunt, to ridicule. Who you ridiculed me saying, are the hands of Zeban Zamuna now in your hand that we should give bread unto your men that are weary? Uh-oh. <laughs> and he took the men, the elders of the city, and it says, thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Sakoth. The word taught carries the idea of discipline or punishment. I have no clue what it means to take them through the thorns and the briars. However, I imagine it ended in their execution because it says that when he came to Penuel, he killed their leadership. And it says just like he did at Sakoth. So whatever it was, it ended in their execution. So once done with Sakoth, he moves on to Penuel, verse 17. And he beat down the tower of Peniel, and he slew the men of the city. He demolished the tower like he said he would. And then the word men of the city is the same use of the word men in verse 15 and 16. So again, it likely just regarded the leadership of the city. So I don't think Gideon slaughtered an entire city. That doesn't sound like a good thing to do. Just their leaders, as he did with Sakoth, so that these guys would not be a burden to the nation anymore, be traitors to the nation anymore. People often accuse Gideon of being vindictive or cruel, but they forget Deborah's record of God cursing those who didn't come to help Israel when they fought against Sisera. This wasn't the first time Gilead had refused to help. 
A good leader is patient with other shortcomings. He should be. If you're someone who is ready to go right to the execution chamber right away with somebody to cut them off if they're an employee of yours or if they're your child or if you're in leadership and ministry, you're ready just to bail on them and give up on them just when they fail or when they blow it or when they have a bad attitude, that's not right. We talked about already being merciful, you know, how he was merciful with the Ephraimites. A good leader is patient with other shortcomings. But a good leader also has the courage to remove someone who is harming God's people over and over and over again. When it becomes a pattern and they're not repenting after you've pulled them aside and you've tried to reason with them and tried to correct them and they refuse to listen to that, you know, Paul talked about turning over certain people to Satan because he said they have shipwrecked other people's faith. He says they've destroyed the faith of some. He says, I've turned them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I kicked them out of the church. That's why he said, I excommunicated them. And there are times when you have to do that. It's been very rare. I think it's now up to four people I've had to do that with in, in the course of 23 years of being a pastor. Not something I go to easily. It's something I want to sit down with someone, find out what's going on, talk to them, train them, teach them, maybe retrain them, maybe go over it again. But there does come a place where you go, listen, you are hurting God's people and you got to go. Got to go. Sometimes that's hard to do as a parent, but sometimes it's what you have to do as a parent too. I love my kids. And I've had talks like that with my kids over the years. Where I've explained to them, I said, your behavior is unacceptable. And they look at you and you go, I'm not a bad kid, dad. And I'm like, I'm not saying you are, but you need to understand something. I'm not going to allow you to just continue to act that way forever. That's why we're having this talk now, because I don't want that to happen. I want you to grow through this. I want to find out what you're struggling with, why you're doing this, so I can help you and I can come alongside you. But a good leader has the courage to do what's necessary when someone's harming God's people over and over again. Now, with that done, Gideon returns to where the rest of the army was camped at the Jordan River to deal with these two prisoner kings. Verse 18, then he said unto Zeb and Zalmunna, what manner of men were those who you slew at Tabor? What kind of question is that? What, what manner means what kind of, what they look like? What, what, you, know, you, you killed two guys. You made an example of two guys at Tabor when you guys came in years ago. What did they look like? That's a weird question. But it gives us a little bit of insight into why Gideon was so frustrated with the Lord when he first came to him. Look at what these guys answer. And they answered, well, they look just like you. He says, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the children of a king. And he said unto them, those are my brothers, even the sons of my mother. And as the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, if you had spared them, I wouldn't kill you now. Gideon was not a man who relished in bloodshed. But when we read this, we realize that Gideon's frustration, his jaded attitude toward the situation way back in chapter 6 was for personal reasons. At some point during those seven years, two of Gideon's older brothers had been captured by these two kings, hadn't gotten to a fortress quick enough. And they weren't just killed, but they were made a spectacle of, made a point of, made an example of. These were hard, wicked, unrepentant men, not just out to conquer, but destroy Israel. And because of that, Gideon says, I cannot show you mercy. And you know, God's word holds true again. What you sow, you reap. And so now Gideon is going to make an example of them. Verse 20. And he said unto Jether, his firstborn, up and slay them. 
But the youth did not draw his sword, for he feared because he was still a youth. The word youth is the same word for the boy they captured earlier. He's just a teenager, maybe even younger. And now why does he ask his son to do this? Well, it would be the worst kind of insult for these powerful men to be killed by a teenager. And so while Gideon's son hesitates, then Zeban Zalmunna said, you rise up and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. Don't do this to us. They begged Gideon to do the deed so they, they wouldn't die with that much shame, which Gideon did, it says. And so Gideon rose and slew Zeban Zalmunna and took away the ornaments that were on their camel's necks. The word here for ornaments, it means crescent moon necklace. It's the worship of the moon god Sin. Very common. In fact, if you go to the nomadic tribes over there, the Arabic tribes today, they still wear them. And it's just interesting because they talk about how Islam was founded from Christianity. I'm not saying that Muhammad was a sin worshiper and the people were. That's not my point. There's no historical evidence for that. But that was the common view of that God. And he was a, a war God. He was all that kind of stuff. And the God of Muhammad was a God of war, not a God of love or mercy. And he still isn't. If you read the Quran, it never says that God loves his enemies. Never. In fact, it says the exact opposite. It says God only loves those who do what he says. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I hear Christians all the time and say, we know Jews, Christians, and Muslims, they worship the same God. Please don't ever say that. That's not true. The character of their God and the character of our God is radically different, radically different. Our God is merciful. Allah is not merciful. Our God is faithful. Allah, you could do everything and still go to hell. He's not faithful. You could put all your trust in him and you might still go to hell. He's not faithful. Our God is faithful. He keeps his promises. He is not fickle. He is good. Now, he took these necklaces from their camels, it mentions here, and Everything Gideon had done up to this point super impressed all the other tribes. And so they want to make him their king and even start a kingly dynasty in Israel. Verse 22. Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both you and your son and your son's sons also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. And it's almost like the Lord had to say, if I chose one man to do it all, you know, you still think it was you guys. You govern us. You be in charge. Just like God said, Israel would think they did it and not him. How did they think 300 men put 135,000 to flight? They thought Gideon was so great. Never looked at it as being the Lord. And I would ask you, do you credit coincidence or dumb luck or someone else's skill when God intervenes or maybe your own skill? Don't do that. Be like Gideon. Look at verse 23. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you. Neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. What a good moment for Gideon, right? He says, ah, I'm not doing this. I don't need to be your ruler. And what I love is what he's saying here. He goes, I don't need to be your ruler to be God's leader. Isn't that interesting? I don't need to be your king, your ruler to be God's leader. It's interesting. A person can have the authority to rule without actually leading anybody. They can. A good leader doesn't require the authority to do anything. People sometimes they come to me and say, God's called me to be a pastor. And I'm like, okay, well, are you pastoring? Well, what do you mean? Don't, don't I need like an official thing? No. Go pastor. What do you mean go pastor? Well, are you discipling people now? Are you encouraging people now? Are you laying down your life for people now? 
Are you giving people your time and your energy now? Are you serving people now? Well, then go do it, and then we'll talk. Pastor Chuck used to say when people would come to him and say, I feel like God's called me to be a deacon. He'd say, go deek. No one's stopping you. You know, when we ordain people, it's not because we think, ooh, that guy has a call upon his life. He's got an anointing upon his life. We need to ordain them. No, we're just trying to empower them to do more of what they're already doing. They're already visiting people in the hospital. They're already discipling people. They're already teaching people God's word. They don't need a formal Bible study to do it. So Gideon, he didn't need to have authority to do what God called him to do. This is so often where husbands and parents and bosses and church leaders fail. They see themselves as and they act like rulers instead of leaders. You see, a ruler's job is to manage his kingdom. A leader's job is to get people to follow That's very different. See, one is concerned with preservation. The other one is about laying your life down. And that's what Jesus did for us, right? He's the good shepherd because he lays down his life for the sheep. Besides, they already had a king. The Lord, the Lord shall rule over you. Or had they forgotten? They had, hadn't they? They'd been living like the Lord wasn't their king for a long time. And that's why they responded this way. Now, I wish chapter 8 ended here because if it did, it would have been perfect. (laughs) Gideon has grown to this giant of faith from where we first found him. It's a beautiful ending to the story if it ends here. But you know, even giants of the faith are still human. And Gideon does stumble at the end. Look at verse 24. But Gideon did say to them, I would desire a request of you that you would give me every man the earrings of his prey. The word there means the war spoils from the dead. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Uh, Just describing them as nomads, so they carried their most treasured possessions with them. Ishmaelites didn't settle down anywhere. They were nomads. So anything that was of value to them, they kept with them. So when they took the war spoils, there was a lot of valuables there. And they answered, well, we will willingly give them. And so they spread a garment and they threw all to every man the earrings of his prey. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's at least 35 pounds of gold. It depends on what shekel they're talking about there because the shekel weight changed in different time periods. But so it's at least 35 pounds of gold. Collars, necklaces is what that means. More of these ornaments, those crescent necklaces purple raiment that was on the kings of Midian and beside the chains that were about their camels' necks. Remember when Gideon took those necklaces from those two kings' camels? For the youngest son of an inconsequential family, those were treasures. He didn't want to go back to being a nobody, and so he asked for more trinkets like that to secure an influential position in the future. How so? Well, verse 27, from all these this jewelry... Imagine he melted it down and they reformed it. Gideon had said he made an ephod from it, and he put it in a city even in Orpha. Now, what is an ephod? Well, the ephod was the high priest's garments. They were sewn with threads of gold. They would actually take the gold, break it down, turn it into thread, and then they wove a garment from it. So the high priest's garments were made of gold and purple thread. It was very beautiful, very costly. And so the ephod is what that is. Now, when we get to the end of Judges, the last few chapters are going to show what condition the priesthood was in during this time, and it's a mess. They were leading the nation 
not to the Lord, not teaching them about the Lord, but they were the ones leading the nation into idolatry. So it's possible that Gideon thought, well, our priests aren't even doing their job anymore. I need to fill that void. Perhaps he wanted his country to look to him after the war. I don't know. Either way, though, for him to be a priest, he's not a Levite. He's not of the house of Aaron. And thus that violated God's law, and it had disastrous results. For it says that all Israel went thither a whoring after it. People started worshiping this garment, this beautiful thing that was a reminder of the victory. They started worshiping that instead of the Lord. So even though Gideon, even if he had a good motive, he disobeyed the Lord. He was violating God's law and it ended up in trouble. By putting this thing on display in his hometown, Gideon actually undid his exhortation to let God reign in their lives because he started to ask them to follow him. Let's not do that with our stuff or with our ministries. If you have an area where you serve the Lord, let's not make it about us. Let's not make it all shiny about us, you know, where they have to come to us for stuff. Someone said to me one time, they said, your job as a pastor is put yourself out of a job. And that's the truth. My job is to equip everybody that comes here so that they take it to heart and they put it into practice in their lives so that they don't need me anymore. Now, hopefully in the church, the idea is that new people keep coming in and then we're all doing that job and everybody's growing and then more new people come in and get saved and, you know, it just continues. And so then my job becomes just continuing to train and disciple those who are doing that job. That's the whole concept of how faithful men, teaching faithful men to teach faithful men that Paul instructed Timothy, a very young pastor, about. It's never about drawing attention to yourself or making people dependent upon you. It snared not just them, but it says which thing became a snare unto Gideon and his whole family. The word there, snare, means something that captures and begins to control you. This desire for respect from his peers to be something God hadn't called him to be ended up hurting Gideon and his family in the long run because he started to act like a king even though he'd rejected their proposition. Verse 28 says, closes this part of the story, but then it tells us about what Gideon did afterwards. Thus was Midian subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted up their heads no more, and the country was in quietness 40 years in the days of Gideon. But look what Gideon did during that time. And Jerobbaal, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house, and Gideon had threescore and ten sons of his body begotten because he had many wives. And his concubine that was in Shechem, she also bare him a son whose name he called Abimelech. He's going to become important in chapter 9. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age, and he was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Orpha of the Abiezrites. But it came to pass, soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel turned again, and they went a-whoring after Baalim, after the, the pagan gods. Specifically, they made Baal Berith their god. And the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who delivered them out of the hands of all their enemies on every side. Neither did they show kindness to the house of Jerobbaal, namely Gideon, according to all the goodness which he had showed unto Israel. So, Things went bad, not just for Israel, but for his family. And we'll see that mess when we get to chapter 9. Now, it's interesting because the writer of Judges keeps trying to call him Gideon, but he says they all wanted to call him Jeroboam. Remember what did Jeroboam mean? The guy who took down Baal, the God killer. We're going to see that name much more often because he's so popular now. That's how they refer to him. And he starts acting like the God killer. He starts acting like the king. It says he took many wives. He had how many sons? I mean, I like a lot of kids, but 70 sons. 
That means he had a lot of, they don't count the daughters back then. So I don't know how many girls he had. He had well over 100 kids between all these wives. That's a lot of women. What are you doing, Gideon? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen someone that you either looked up to or respected or someone you just saw as like a rock in the faith and then they start doing things that you thought they never could? It's nutty, isn't it? It's easy to wonder, how is that possible? I know them. I know them. I had a guy, a friend of mine, who prayed at my bachelor party, prophesied over me, and it came true 100%. He's an atheist now or agnostic or, you know, whatever. He's not following the Lord. He's not walking with the Lord right now. How does that happen? How does that happen? Truth is, all of us are capable of the worst things the moment we stop following the Lord, the moment we start making those small compromises. It's the Lord who makes us great, not we ourselves. So if we reject his ways, we're going to end up on the wrong path. No matter how far down the right path we've been going, we're going to start making wrecks of things around us. Now, despite all of this, Gideon did have a strong foundation. He still pointed people to the Lord, but his influence waned because they looked at his life. And so after he died, the nation went to pieces. They turned again to false gods. They were worshiping this god, Baal Bereth. I don't even know who that is. Very little record of him. He wasn't even a big god back then. It just means Lord of the Covenant. Jesus is Lord of the Covenant. They didn't need this thing. All we know about this god is that his temple was in Shechem, and that becomes important when we get to chapter 9. So while Gideon's story is powerful, his legacy is a failure. Why did he do all this? Two reasons. He wanted to bring respect to his family, and he wanted the nation to follow the Lord. Both failed because he violated God's commands. You can want the right things. You can want good things. But if you're not going to make your life in accordance to God's word, you'll never achieve those things. The good things we want, we have to achieve them God's way. And this is where, in particular, I see the church in the States where we struggle. I've met a lot of good men. And I've watched them go down paths. And you go, why are you going that way? We're trying to reach people for the Lord. That's good you're starting to violate clear biblical principles. And I'm not talking about just stylistic differences. That's not what I'm saying. But you're starting to violate clear biblical principles. Yeah, but look at the effect it's having. The ends do not justify the means. Very few leaders in the Bible finish well. And this is why we see few legacies in the Bible. So here's my closing exhortation. Don't finish like Gideon. You know who you should finish like. Finish like Daniel, right? Daniel. Gideon left behind no legacy, no lasting influence, not a good one. But have you ever thought about Daniel's influence? You say, well, yeah, of course, he affected kings. Let's take it a step further. Daniel's influence trickles all the way down to the birth of the Messiah. Say, how so? Where do you think a bunch of Babylonian wise men got the idea to come looking for a star? It's prophesied in the book of Numbers. Where do you think they got that idea? From their rituals? Doubt that. They got that idea from their fellow wise men who shared the scriptures with them. And whatever Daniel shared, it had such an impact that it had been passed down centuries later that when they saw the star, 
they came looking for the promised king. So let's be like Daniel. Let's finish like him. Amen. Now, Gideon did a lot of good things, but this reinforces why we need the king of kings, right? (laughs) The Gideons of the world are great, but they aren't the solution. They're still sinners. They still have weaknesses. Jesus doesn't. Amen? Lord, we say with your servant John, come quickly. (laughs) Come quickly, Lord. Even though we do our best, we still fail. We still fall short, Lord. And even when we're doing well, we still have weaknesses. Lord, even we think of all the revivals that have occurred in the church throughout history, and they don't last forever. They might carry through a couple generations, but they don't last forever. Lord, that's because we're just men. We're just men. We're just people. You're the King of Kings, the one who never fails and has no weaknesses or shortcomings. So we do pray come quickly, Lord. And in the meantime, we want to finish well. We want to have a legacy like Daniel. So Lord, we surrender to you and say, we want to do things your way. We choose to do things your way, to have your word be the thing that guides us in all that we do. To trust in you with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding. But everything we do to take you into account, to acknowledge you, knowing that if we do so, you'll direct our paths, make them straight. So Lord, we pray you do that. Fill us with your spirit. We can't do it in our own strength. Make us great, Lord, by your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.